Our next sermon in our book three of the Psalms series will be Psalm 88. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to page 463 in those black Bibles where you can find Psalm 88 verses 1 to 18. We have one more Psalm in book three, and that will be Lord willing next Sunday. And then after that, we plan to take a break from the Psalms and then move to 3 John, 2 John, and 1 John in that order to prepare you for not only Advent season, but mixing up your diet and God's word here at Embassy with some New Testament scriptures. Psalm 88 reminds me of a movie I watched with my wife in the movie theater. The movie is called The Boy in Striped Pajamas. If you've seen it, then you might know where this is going. It's a novel first that was written and then turned into a feature film. And the basic premise of the movie, spoiler alert, is that a young boy who is a son of a general captain of some sorts, leadership position in the Nazi regime in Germany, and overseeing a concentration camp, this young boy who's living on the quarters of this concentration camp but outside of it befriends another boy. And he's wearing striped pajamas because they are the clothes that all of the Jewish men, women, and children were wearing inside of the camp. Through this friendship, long story short, the boy that's the German son of a soldier is so friends with this guy and doesn't understand the concentration camp, he's too young, but they decide to come over on the other side of the camp and play. Uh, On the worst of all days, it's extermination day. And so the movie ends with everyone in the camp being um, eliminated, including this German son, and he finds out at the very last minute, and then the movie ends. The reason why Psalm 88 is a lot like that movie is because as I did not know what I was getting myself into. And when the credits roll, I just sat. It's one of those vivid memories in a theater. I just sat and I stared in unbelief, disbelief. No, you didn't. You did not just end the movie that way. What happened to the happy ending Psalm 88, if read in isolation all by itself, is just like that experience. It just ends. Credits roll, and there's only darkness in the theater. Follow along as I read. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master. According to Mahalath, Linnoth, a maskil of Haman, the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. 
I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. In your steadfast love, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that'll end our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. My prayer for us is that we will admit all of us experience the darkness of Psalm 88. Therefore, all of us need to worship using Psalm 88. In a sentence, if I were to summarize, I think what I'd like to communicate to you as I unpack Psalm 88, it is that sentence. My prayer for you and my hope is that you will realize all of us will experience the reality of the darkness that is explained here in Psalm 88. Therefore, all of us need to worship using Psalm 88. It's just two simple points. The reality of the darkness and the response that we should have in the darkness. The reality of and the response to. The darkness here is the very last word of verse 18. It's why it is one of the most discouraging psalms if you just look at the words and nothing before or after it. Derek Kidner is by far one of my favorite commentaries. It's simple, it's short. If you would like to study the Psalms and have just one little resource to read alongside of it, Derek Kidner's book on the Psalms, his commentary, very helpful. He calls this the saddest Psalm in all of the Psalms. It's all lament. We're accustomed to this by now. This is the 89th sermon in our 
series in the psalm book. Lament comprises of a solid portion of the psalms, and we have lamented again and again in God's word as we've walked through, up to this point, 88 of the 150 psalms. So that shouldn't be a surprise. What is surprising is that of the lament psalms, so many of them turn at least a verse or two to hope, to trust, to provide some kind of comfort. And when you look at Psalm 88, you do not find that turn. My soul is full of troubles. The reality that he is describing here is that his soul is, and the word full here, by the way, is full like your stomach's full. It's the word typically used for satiated. My soul is so full of trouble. I think it's probably best to translate this in terms of the concept of, I've had enough. It was a full meal. Troubles, God... I've had enough. Now, look at the contrast in the very next line of verse 3. My life draws near to Sheol. Here the phrase is, I lay my hand on Sheol. So this could be interpreted two ways. I'm so full of troubles that I am so near death, which is definitely going on in our psalm from beginning to end. I'm so near death that I could put my hand on it. Which is the way the ESV translates this. My life draws near. It's right there. There's death. There's another way to translate this phrase. Putting my hand on it as if he's reaching out and grabbing it. Put the two lines together. My soul is so full of trouble, I'm done. Not, I want to kill myself. This is not, I think, a man who is suicidal. I think this is a man who's saying, I'm just ready to die. I'm done. Just looking at verse 3, that quick little explanation. Do you all understand what I mean by the reality of darkness is being communicated in a profound way, in a way that we need to admit, in a way that we need to acknowledge Do you all understand that all of us will experience this kind of darkness? We will experience it most ultimately when we are able to put our hand right on death's door. Because we're going to die. But even prior to that, this psalmist is not saying that this is just the very last days on his deathbed. He is saying from his youth, verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth, On up, I suffer your terrors and I am helpless. This has been his cry and his prayer all day long, day and night. Look at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Every day, verse 9, he says, I call upon you and spread out my hands to you. And then finally, in the last stanza, he has this phrase again about how it is all day long, from my youth up. The constant assault of the waters rushing toward him, sweeping over him. He's not able to keep his head above water. 
I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the Bible includes this psalm in the Bible. Why? Because all of us will experience this kind of darkness in our youth, in our teen years, in our 20s, 30s, and every decade afterward. We experience death. We attend funerals. Why is this important for us to acknowledge? Because we're saying that the Bible holds for us the keys to understanding and making sense of the world. It's not just that we believe the Bible because it shows us some things about Jesus, but it shows us some things about everything, about existence. It taps into ultimate reality, and death is a reality that exists in this world. And most of us don't love and choose to say, I want to go watch the boy in striped pajamas now. Thank you for that little tip. Most of us don't think, I can't wait to the next funeral. Most of us aren't hoping that Psalm 89 is going to be another downer. You're hoping, can we next week return back to the hope? Most of us like movies that have a happy ending. And I think there's something good about that impulse because I think it's a nature of the human heart. We desire life. We desire love. We desire light. And this psalm is expressing all of those desires. But it's doing so from the perspective of just kind of turning your back on anything that is good and just looking into the night darkness. The dark night of the soul, some people call this psalm. Therefore, knowing that this psalm is written by a guy we don't necessarily know in the open superscription, meaning there's his name in other parts of the Bible, but we don't know his his story. We don't know much about him other than the fact that he penned this psalm and that he's explaining that his life has been filled with darkness. And in some ways, don't you think it's helpful to know that we can't point the finger and say, well, it's because of your sin, Remember Job's counselors? Don't we know from the book of Job that it's not always just because of your sin that the darkness comes into your life? That the waves come crashing in, that the clouds roll over and they just stay and they stay and you want to think, well, maybe if I do this. Sometimes the darkness does not lift right away and some of you have been in those seasons, some of you are in those seasons, and almost all of us can guarantee it, we will be in those seasons. I believe that it is a balm, it is an encouragement, it is helpful for us to just admit the reality of the darkness, the reality of death. It's helpful because I think it tells us that the Bible is not a fairy tale, it's not a novel. It's not like going to the movies. It's in touch with real life. Every single emotion, desire, and feeling that you could have is, I believe, accurately portrayed and expressed in the Psalms. When we started this sermon series, I said from the very beginning, one of the reasons we're going to spend the time that it's going to take to get through the Psalms is because we need to get to every single corner of your human heart, every feeling, every thought, every emotion, 
and then see how God's word shines light and brings help and serves as a tool for you to have an emotional and spiritual healthy relationship with God. And Psalm 88 gives you the freedom to understand that just because things are bad, it does not necessarily mean that you sinned in a certain way. The fallenness of this world, the reality of sin and suffering means that we can have empathy, we can have comfort and encourage one another and not have to immediately jump to accusations. At least in this psalmist's life, there is nothing specific that we can pin him on to say, well, that's clearly why God's doing this. We don't know. And it's probably better that we don't. It's probably better that we realize that Psalm 88 is in the Bible at least once. Meaning, it's unique. Thankfully, there's not dozens of Psalm 88s. But I hope and pray that each and every one of you will take this first observation to heart. We will, like this man, experience moments in our lives, especially as we waste away physically, as our bodies grow weary. We will get to the point that I've seen so many folks get to where they just said, I'm, I'm ready to be done. I'm just ready to be done from all of the pain my body's feeling. And again, this is not suicide. I'm talking about being near someone that's at the end of their life. And if you've had those intimate moments, then you will know exactly what I'm referring to. The reality of somebody saying what this psalmist says. I've lived a life. I'm ready to move on. And especially for those who are in Christ, I'm ready to move on to glory, to life. This world and all that it has offered, I don't need any more of its sorrows. There are some things that are worse than death, but in this life, if there is no hope apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Psalm 88 would be the final word. And so I want to ask you today, do you understand what will happen to you when you die? Will that be it? Then Psalm 88 would be it. That's your life. It's only darkness. There's no reason to have hope that there's going to be a happily ever after at the end of the story. I think the Bible wants to paint the picture here so it wakes us up to the reality that the wages of sin is death. And the darkness described here eight different times is referring to Sheol, the grave, Abaddon, death, being buried, being swallowed up in a flood. The depths of your pit, another way to talk about being put into the grave. Being remembered no more, cut off from your hand. In the land of forgetfulness. So if you've never spent time thinking about what will happen when you die, today is the day. At this church, we do way more weddings than we do funerals. Some of that, I think, is just because of God's providence. And some of that is because most of you are young. But it also means that we don't have a lot of dirges, laments, funeral songs, sobering reminders. 
think we need to remember the reality of death today. The sadness of that our sin, collectively and individually, brought about the wages of that death. So, if that's point one, point two. If we would admit that all of us will experience this darkness of death, we need to respond with worship using Psalm 88. Okay, two quick observations. Just notice, I've already mentioned this, but it's in the Bible. Okay, but more specifically, it's in the Psalm book of the Bible, the hymnal of the Bible, the worship set list of the Bible. Are you guys tracking with me here? The Bible includes a corporate worship song. That's why all of the sermons in this series are a song of or about. A song about the dark sea of darkness. You need Psalm 88, which is why I believe it's in this hymn book of the Bible for you to be instructed by it. So, consider this. Have you ever felt sad? Maybe like Psalm 88. Dark, depressed, anxious, worried. Not wanting to go to church, but you did anyway. And it just so happened that on that day that you showed up for church, we were talking about joy from Philippians 4 or something like that. And we had five songs about the joy of the Lord being our strength. And they were all upbeat. They were all in these happy tunes. I would have guessed that almost every one of you have had that experience before. Where you have in your emotional state and where God has put you, had to walk into church and been encouraged to sing about the joy of the Lord in the middle of your sorrows. If you go around from church to church to church, in general, my basic observation is that that would happen regularly. The top songs on the Christian worship list are not laments. And I'm not necessarily saying they should be. It's just an observation that regularly people who are dealing with sorrow, which is a lot of us, have to, to be a faithful Christian, show up to church. And then when they go to church, most of them are going to be, okay, guys, let's clap. Let's, let's get upbeat. Is there ever a speed on the dial where we say, let's slow down. Let's sing a minor key. Let's pray a prayer of lament. So I want to flip the script now. Is it possible that some of you are coming into church today? And you're like, I've had such a great week. It has been so filled with joy. God has been so good. I got this and that happening to me. My time in the word has been like Moses being on top of Mount Sinai. My face, it's glowing. And then you showed up to church today. And we're in Psalm 88. Why is the one palatable or okay for most people, but the other's like, come on, Pastor Phil. Come on, church. We should have more upbeat stuff. That was a bit of a downer today. I hope you know what I'm trying to touch on here. I think that our diet is out of whack. And I'm not necessarily saying that Embassy Church has figured it out, but by submitting ourselves to book three of the Psalms, 
we've had a steady diet of laments lately. And maybe that's for the best. You need this. Second little observation. The most encouraging takeaway for instruction that you should have from this psalm is the way it begins. Verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. In the beginning, he's crying. In the middle, he's crying. Verse 9. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. And then look at verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. What's so striking about the fact that this man is praying to God is the fact that throughout the entire psalm, God seems to be his adversary. Look carefully. He doesn't just say there's troubles in the world. He's saying, God, I have troubles because of you. It's a God lament, not just a general lament. It's a lament toward God. Follow the psalm very closely with me. He says in verse 6, as the first specific statement, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. It is your wrath that lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. You, verse 8 says, have caused my companions to shun me, and you have made me a horror to them. Do you all see the point I'm making? His problem is with God's wrath. And again, we don't know the circumstances to figure out, well, does he deserve God's wrath? We should assume that God is good and right and just, but even if we don't know the circumstances, what do we know about the psalmist? Verse 1, verse 9, verse 13. God is not just his adversary. He is his only source of hope. Do you all see that from beginning to middle and end of this song? He teaches us how to pray in the darkness. And he is a faithful worshiper of God. His God is a God that he believes of saving and salvation. Verse 1. I think it is a huge lesson for all of us to take away. We desperately need faith to believe in the unchanging character and goodness of who God is, even in spite of whatever circumstances that seem to contradict who God has revealed himself to be. That requires faith. We do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. And that faith is centered around the character of God the promises of God, the goodness of God, and he is not uninformed about these realities. Notice that the deep desire in his heart is worship, not just life. I love this about the psalm. Because even though it's filled with darkness, even though everything about it just seems bleak, I think he's modeling for us how we should respond in the middle of that dark night of the soul. And if you carefully unpeel the middle section of this psalm and these rhetorical questions, notice what does he really want the most? He wants 
to be in a relationship with God. He wants worship of God. Look at it. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, verse 9, I spread out my hands to you, and then he says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? In other words, if I die, I will not be able to praise you anymore. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? I don't want to be in the grave. I want to declare your steadfast love. How about your faithfulness in that place, Abaddon, which is basically the fiery pit. If you read Job's references to this, you'll see the explicitness of this fiery pit. Is your faithfulness proclaimed there? No. That's the rhetorical question, answer to all of these questions. Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? And then look very carefully, verse 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? The thing that he wants most. And the reason I said peel back is because when the darkness of your life comes, when trials roll in, it will melt away all the other stuff and it will reveal the true nature of your soul. And this worshiper is being revealed as one who wants nothing more than God himself. God, give me life so I can praise you. I want you and your face. I want your presence and your nearness. So I would hopefully think that each and every one of you should be able to then say, are you allowing the trials that you are going through, our church is going through, and everything else to be a mirror for us? An opportunity to be humbled. And then ask ourselves, God, what are you trying to reveal about the nature of my soul and my heart? What I really want more than anything. So often God's disciplinary love, especially for his children, is to cut off all of those things that you're clinging to that are not the Lord Jesus Christ and help you see, is your heart really after him or is it just the stuff that he gives you? If he takes that stuff away and your life feels like it's empty without him, well, then now we know your heart. You know your heart. And I think that's one of the weighty or, or the, the important takeaways for each and every one of us as we allow Psalm 88 to be used by us to respond. Respond with faithful prayers in the darkness. Respond with prayers for God and his glory and his presence and his face. And finally, our response of Psalm 88 should be to read it in light of the light. The light that does come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that light did not come without him first experiencing the full wrath of God, the terror of darkness. I think that there's two Old Testament pictures that are being potentially alluded to here, and both of them are related to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. I called this sermon a song about the dark sea of darkness because of the water imagery. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waters, your waves. This could be a reference to Jonah chapter 2 
And some of the parallels between Psalm 88's description and Jonah chapter 2 is a fitting way for you to potentially say, hmm, just like Jonah, swallowed up by the waters. Death, it's right there. Psalm 88's describing that picture of a man at any moment going to die. But friends, is that the end of the story of Jonah? He doesn't just sink into the ground. God, in his kindness, allows him to be rescued from the grave. Jonah being swallowed by, by the fish, by this great big fish, and then being spit out. Jesus himself says, repent and believe because you have in front of you the sign of Jonah, a man who will die and go down all the way into the depths of the pit, and then he will be raised again from the dead. You need no other sign to believe than the sign of Jonah. That's picture number one that our psalm may be alluding to. Picture number two, water, waves, flood. Verse 16, your wrath has swept over me and your dreadful assaults destroy me. If it's an illusion potentially of the water covering over someone and it being wrath, is it possible that this psalmist is drawing off of the first depiction of God's mighty wrath coming down on earth in Genesis chapter 6? The flood story. I think there's a good chance that it is, and the reason I think we should be meditating on the flood story is because God, in his grace and kindness, did not destroy every human on the earth, but preserved a man, a righteous and blameless man named Noah, and then made a covenant promise with Noah and all of creation, and then through that promise committed himself to the earth and every human on it. Because of God's promise, because of his willingness and desire to make that promise, not because necessarily of anything that humans did on the earth, God decided to choose to stay committed to his creation work. And as we know, as the story goes, those that came off of the ark quickly fell right back into the very sin that brought the flood in the first place. And it's one big cycle of sin again and again throughout the story of the Bible. And God pouring out his wrath, his just and righteous wrath on human sinners. For the wages of sin is death. And God in his justice and righteousness is right to take every human on the earth and destroy them with the floodwaters of his wrath. So then why did he save Noah? They were sinners even on the ark. And what's he going to do afterwards? Now he's bound himself to this promise. The solution to it comes as Peter alludes to it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Our baptism is a lot like the floodwaters of Noah. Jesus Christ became the covenant head like Noah. The one who would fill the promise to be able to make us able to withstand the darkness of the grave and be swallowed up by it. He suffered in the flesh. As he died on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, 1 Peter 3.18 says, the only righteous one, the only man that was deserving of not dying and receiving the flood waters of God's wrath, that man was swallowed up by them. I'd love for all of you to make sure you pay very careful attention to the five statements in the Apostles' Creed. 
because one of them that's overlooked that we're touching on today in Psalm 88 is that he was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered on the cross under Pontius Pilate, and then he descended to the place of the dead. I believe that that's just a reference to him being buried in the ground. He died. He experienced the descent from heaven to earth, but a double descent. He descended to the pit, to the grave. He went through the full experience of being one in the likeness of sinful flesh. He did not sin, but Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh, experienced for us the wages of sin is death, so that the gift of God would be eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The question that's being asked in verse 10 is answered when Christ rose again from the dead. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Answer, they do when they are in Jesus Christ. We can pray and use Psalm 88 and not just sit there at the end of the church service and say, well, that was a downer. Because if we have turned from our sin and united ourselves to Christ's death, and say, that baptism that I went under, and I put myself willingly to turn from my sin and be buried with Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism, I did not stay down in the water when I was baptized. I was raised to new life. And that resurrection from the dead is the light of the darkness. There is sorrow in the night, but as the Psalms say, there is joy that comes in the morning. And so, up from the grave he arose on that first Easter Sunday. Light came forth. If Psalm 88 was all there was, then you all should be the biggest cynics and you would have no hope. But Psalm 88 is not all there is. Even if you just come back next week, you will see that the very next Psalm, God is going to say, I will keep my promises and I will bring about a son of David who will deliver on those promises so that the King of kings and Lord of lords will once and for all put an end to the death and the darkness of the grave. So, brother or sister, be encouraged that no matter how long the dark night of the soul lasts, you can pray because he prayed a very Psalm 88-like experience that we just heard about from Matthew chapter 26. In that Garden of Gethsemane, he was experiencing sorrow even to the point of death. He doesn't just know what it's like to go through darkness emotionally. He knows what it's like to actually have his life come to an end. He's been in the grave, and you, you're living. You have not. But you are going to need him to get through the darkest of the darkness, death itself. So center yourself. By faith in Jesus Christ, receive the free gift of salvation and know that he experienced every last bit of Psalm 88 so that you could experience the coming light of the resurrection day. If you're here today as a guest or visitor, I hope that even though it is a bit of a sad downer of a sermon topic, it will be a sobering sermon to wake you up from reality. The reality of the darkness. Will you respond? Will you respond the way this psalmist does? By turning to God and crying out, you 
are the God of my salvation. You could do that right now. In your heart, at your seat as we pray in just a second. Today could be a day where the darkness is lifted and true light comes bursting into your soul. Turn to Jesus. Let's all now bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we now pray in the name of your Son, Jesus, united to him in his life, new resurrection life in our hearts, new creation, awakening us to the reality of our impending death. I pray that that will be helpful to sanctify those of us who are in Christ Jesus now. I pray that you would use our meditations and our reflections and our applications on this text to encourage us, like this psalmist, Haman, pray day and night, morning and evening, no matter how long. No matter how long the trials and troubles fill our soul and our life. Lord, grant us this kind of faith. Who else are we going to turn to? And I pray that that answer would be obvious to all of us. You hold the gift of life. So we want to pray for there to be the ability for each and every one of us to respond with faithfulness for our individual specific struggles and sorrows. And I pray collectively that you will guide Embassy Church, lead us to the light of the glory of Christ, and help us to hold fast to your promises and your word. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.